Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So let's talk about this. Let's get started on the issue of the Delta variant, reportedly, according to CDC papers, uh, spreading as quickly as chickenpox, and even a fully vaxxed person, so the CDC documentation suggests, who contracts the Delta variant may spread it to eight or nine other people. What's the international health concern? Also, what does our guest think of the reopening of society as we're doing it in various parts of this country? And again, Alberta's uh, initiative, dropping virtually all COVID restrictions and, again, treating COVID like other communicable diseases like the annual flu. Dr. Ronald St. John has been involved with public health for 35 years in this country with the Public Health Agency of Canada and the United States with the CDC. He was the World Health Organization Director for the Americas, first director of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at PHAC, national manager for Canada's response to SARS, and the founder of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, also known as GFIN. I don't know why the federal government hasn't gotten that going again properly, because it was invaluable. Dr. St. John, good to have you back on the program. How are you, sir? I'm really well, and thank you so much for the invitation. Anytime. I always love to talk to you. What are your thoughts on the Delta variant and the word from the CDC that it spreads as easily as chickenpox and fully vaccinated people can contract the variant and pass it on to eight or nine others? What does that say to you? Well, a couple of things. Uh, <clears throat> to say it's, it spreads uh, as quickly as chickenpox, I assume they mean in unvaccinated people, but it's not specified. But I would assume, I would assume that it's, uh, it's among unvaccinated people. Um, it, I've, I've glanced at some of the data, but it's not peer-reviewed and it's not published in a scientific journal kind of way about, uh, about vaccinated people spreading the disease. We know that vaccinated people can become infected. Uh, the, vi- the vaccine is not 100% effective. Uh, so some people can, uh, won't, won't have a good response. Some people can't be, um, uh, some of the vaccinated people may indeed become infected. Um, how often they spread it, the frequency of spread, that's what's not clear to me uh, in the data that's been presented so far. And so far, I think it's just been an internal document that's been spread around. Mm. So I'm waiting to see uh, a little more data. Uh, you know, in other places, for example, Israel, where they looked at healthcare workers, vaccinated healthcare workers, and they were looking at uh, breakthrough infections in those. And the breakthrough infected people, presume, they say, did not spread it to anyone. But again, that was before Delta. So there's so many ifs. Uh, and I'm waiting to see uh, a little bit more information. Dr. St. John, people will use the CDC information as an argument against being vaccinated. What do you say about the value of being vaccinated at this time? All spreading uh, and transmission issues aside, the vaccines that we have have been extremely, I just stress, extremely effective in preventing serious illness and death. And that has been a major breakthrough. Uh, and, and that is the, one of the primary reasons why anybody who's not vaccinated should be vaccinated as soon as possible. So what are your thoughts then on the Alberta approach? Contact tracing is over. And as of the 16th of August, a person who tests positive for COVID will not be required to quarantine. It is recommended, but not required. Uh, we're all going to have to treat COVID as another communicable disease like the annual flu at some point. With a high percentage of Canada's national population being vaccinated, is there a sustainable argument that we have reached this particular point in time that Alberta's argument, Alberta's position is sustainable? I, I, don't, I don't understand the strategy. I think in, if I'm, I, I looked up some data, and if I'm correct, in the last two weeks or so, the number of new cases per day has has been is, has increased fivefold, fivefold from 30 to 150 thereabouts. Um, so you have an increasing curve, uh, which means there has been increased transmission, um, and you have about 30 percent, 35 percent of your population unvaccinated. That's one out of every three people unvaccinated. What is the strategy for stopping all of your measures to contain the virus? I mean, we've gotten where we are 
because we used public health measures and we used vaccines. Have we gotten enough vac people vaccinated to cover off removal of all of the public health measures? I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't see it. When do you think we would logically be prepared to declare COVID to be endemic and take the uh, approach that Alberta and other jurisdictions, for example, the United, many in the United States have taken? Hard to say. You know, uh, some of the provinces have targets of 80% of the population having at least one dose and 70% being fully protected with two doses. Um, and, uh, and then uh, everything will be okay. Uh, but, you know, you look, you look around and at a place like Sydney in Australia, where they had very few or almost no cases for, a lo for quite a while, and now they've had four weeks of lockdown uh, extended because they're trying to get control of a surge of cases. Um, at some point in time, and I don't know when that is exactly, but certainly when we go periods of time with no cases, maybe, at some point in time, we have to do something to uh, re revive the economy, et cetera, and be prepared for outbreaks of the, of the disease and be prepared to go backwards and institute strict lockdown for localized control of infections. Exactly when that is, I'm not sure. Um, so it's a difficult question. And I think we need to just, re as Ontario has been doing, Remove some of the measures, wait and see. Wait and see what happens for a little bit, remove a few more, and, uh, and hopefully things will stay under control. Dr. St. John, the takeaway or the takeaways from SARS, you were the national manager at that time. Did public health and did governments take full advantage of the most relevant lessons learned from SARS when it came to responding to COVID, or were some of the programs, some of the recommendations that came from that SARS investigation set aside and not put to use when they maybe should have been? I'd say um, there were some lessons learned <clears throat> that were actually uh, applied. There's a saying in emergency, in emergency response circles that a lesson learned is not learned until it's applied. Uh, and in, there were a few lessons learned that were certainly applied. One had to do with communication. Uh, during SARS 2003, one of the problems that we had was there were too many spokespersons with slightly different messages, <clears throat> all sort of speaking at the same time. Uh, <clears throat> that's been solved uh, to a large extent. As you look around uh, the country, the spokespersons tend to be the chief medical officers of the provinces and the minister of health uh, of the, the, uh, of the uh, province plus the premier. So uh, we've narrowed it down to uh, basically trying to have single messages, consolidated, coordinated messages. So that's a good thing. Um, we learned a lot about hospital infection control from SARS 2003, and uh, a lot of those lessons have been uh, applied. Um, unfortunately, they weren't applied in uh, nursing homes. We've learned some lessons there that nursing homes are particularly susceptible to a respiratory virus. Where things did not go so well, I don't I think, is... Um, data sharing and data common data systems between uh, different different uh, public health systems in the provinces uh, and, and with the federal government. Um, I am aware of one province I won't mention by name where uh, five five sub jurisdictions have five different data data systems that are not compatible with each other. Um, and that means somebody has to do a manual manual labor labor to transfer data from one, each one of these systems into a common system. So we still don't have uh, what I would call optimal data sharing uh, across the country. Yeah, so what do we do each time a COVID variant appears, a new one? That could be out there right now. We're not even aware. Uh, I think I'm correct about that. So what do we do? What's the best approach then if a new variant appears and it starts to show signs that it could be a significant problem uh, are, 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 you, are you confident that our response will be what it should be? Well, uh, let me start by saying that there, there is a, a repetitive cycle that happens in emergencies. <clears throat> and when, when there is an emergency that hits, the government's response can be intense with, with absolute unlimited funding to deal with it. Uh, and then the response works and the emergency is solved. 
uh, and then you go into a period where nothing is happening. Well, that's the most important time. Uh, when nothing is happening, that's when you train people, that's when you revise your plans, that's when you do exercises, much like the military. The military knows that between wars, you don't stop doing things. You, you train, you keep training and training your personnel. You get new personnel, they have to be trained. This is something that is often uh, lost by governments because they move on to other priorities. In my opinion, one of the things we have to get, have to get our head around is that period between uh, emergencies, when this COVID thing might be under control or even over, we've got to continue to plan and work and train people for the next one. All right, so that makes me think about the Global Public Health Intelligence Agency, which you founded and which was a great success for this country and for the World Health Organization and for other countries in locating dangerous public health concerns like pandemics long before you otherwise would become or the world would otherwise become aware. Uh, I'm absolutely surprised, amazed really, that GFIN hasn't been properly put back in place by the current federal government. They dismantled it. COVID could clearly have illustrated how significantly or should have clearly illustrated how significantly we need GFIN. Would, would you agree? And, and please yeah. remind us what, what the role was that GFIN played. Well, GFIN was a system that is, is, is for early detec detection of events. Uh, <clears throat> that means you, you try to find something in health that is unusual, uh, unexpected. Uh, people in a village suddenly dying with no cause. Uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, so it was set up to be computer-based and be able to scan the world for, uh, for events as quickly as possible. But again, it became sort of a, um, a casualty of this period I've been telling you about where between, between emergencies, people began to think, well, there hasn't been since 2010 with H1N1, there hasn't been anything really big happening anywhere in the world. Why are we investing the money and time and effort in this global scanning when nothing is happening? Well, that's when you do do it, is you, because you have, if you're not there looking, you'll miss it when it comes. So there was a de-emphasis on, uh, on GFIN, a changing of its mission, a changing of its personnel, uh, and, and it, it, it just it lost, it lost its uh, mission and goals. Um, there has been a review panel uh, that has put out a report now, uh, the review panels established by the minister, uh, and they put out a, uh, an excellent report uh, with a lot, large number of recommendations. The point now is getting those recommendations put back in place and executed. Yeah, uh, for sure. U.S. President Biden has announced American troops will be out of Iraq by year's end. Now, I think Iran will step in with its proxies and ISIS will probably reemerge. In Afghanistan, the Taliban are already claiming huge swaths of the country as the U.S. pulls out, and the Afghan army is suffering defeats and defections. We're going to be speaking with Major General Jeffrey Schlosser later on this hour, former commanding officer of the United States 101st Airborne Division. He was the commander in Afghanistan. And uh, we'll also complete last week's interview with the general on his book, Marathon War, which is about Afghanistan, and it is a great great book. If you want to read a really excellent book about military marathon war, we'll do it for you. It's very honest. Now, there was a webinar at uh, Frontier Center, a think tank I'm sure you're aware of, and it was hosted by 27-year Canadian Armed Forces veteran, Lieutenant Colonel David Redman. Colonel Redman is also the former director of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. He's been on this program before. And Colonel Redmond holds that Canada's Prime Minister, the Premiers, and the Medical Officers of Health must be held responsible for Canada's response to COVID, particularly for maintaining and extending this lockdown model, or the one that we um, lived through. And everyone is now saying, everyone I know, is saying no more lockdowns. Uh, are you getting that from politicians, from Medical professional from the business community, Goldie Hyder, the president of the Business Council of Canada, said that last weekend on this program, no more lockdowns. People, I, I don't think people could tolerate more lockdowns. Colonel Redmond, how are you? 
I'm outstanding. How about you, Roy? I'm 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 doing just almost as well as you. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. I've always enjoyed our conversations. You certainly create a lot of dialogue between me and my listeners. So um, let me begin, and I, you you tell me you can correct course any time, Colonel, as you wish. But but you you have said and you wrote that the world had choices in early 2020 when COVID appeared globally and began to spread and cause severe illness and deaths. Emergency measures, and this is from our last conversation. Well, we've had a couple on the air. But our first conversation, you said, emergency measures were in place and approved by federal governments, provincial governments, and medical officers of health. Is that correct? Every province and territory in Canada, as well as the federal government, had a COVID, not COVID, but had a pandemic influenza plan that was based on best lessons learned from every pandemic. And if we had followed them, we would not have followed the lockdown model that we did. So everybody had, they were all there. Everybody was aware of them. They weren't hidden away. They hadn't gathered dust. They were there and they were approved and they were ready to go. Yes? Correct. They had been updated routinely and they were available to the premiers in every province and territory, as well as the federal government to the prime minister. So Colonel Redmond, what did those emergency measures that were approved call for? What would the response to COVID have been had those measures been followed? In, uh, in the position paper that I've written and that I've published on the Frontier Center for Public Policy, it very clearly shows that you follow an emergency management process. And that starts with looking at the actual hazard that is coming at you. In this case, in February and March, we knew that COVID-19 was very age-specific. It was killing 95% worldwide people over the age of 60 with severe multiple comorbidities. Therefore, we should have targeted protection to the people in Canada over the age of 60, and we should have encouraged the people under the age of 60 to carry on with their lives with confidence. Um, I have put these together, these questions together, in a form that makes sense to me. If it doesn't make sense to you, I'm going to tell you again, please, or ask you again, to please change course as you choose, as as you think is appropriate, because I want to hear your thoughts on on your position paper. So we just talked about what the emergency measures would would have called for, um, or did call for, and they were ignored. Was COVID sufficiently, pardon me, at any time, um, impactful, sufficiently impactful, to justify moving away, navigating away from those approved emergency pandemic responses? At any time, was it? In my opinion, no. Because if you had done the correct process in February and March, you would have been able to explain to the public First of all, you would have been able to issue a written plan which would have shown exactly what the government response was going to be and why. But what we didn't do is we waited until the declaration of the pandemic and then we followed the failed practice that had come out of China of lockdowns. What do you say, I'm going to insert a question here, what do you say to the decision taken by the Alberta Public Officer of Health, Dr. Henshaw, and supported by the uh, Kenny government, that effective immediately, contact tracing is over, and by the 16th of August, if you test positive for COVID, it's recommended that you quarantine yourself, but not required. What do you think of that? Okay, so let's break down the the whole of what they've done. In fact, what, what they've announced, with the exception of the very last statement, they have done what I would have recommended to do in March of 2020. We should never have found ourselves in lockdowns, the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions to control this disease, because we already knew from the WHO document, last published in September of 2019, that non-pharmaceutical interventions do not significantly decrease the spread of a virus. 
they should not have been used in the way they were done. And if we thought lockdowns were actually decreasing the spread of COVID-19, there have been over 35 peer-reviewed studies by the best infectious disease doctors in the world that prove that NPIs, again, do not stop the spread. So with the exception of the very last statement, I would still say that the one NPI that should be being followed is if you are sick, stay home. And to repeat, what you're telling us is procedure that was approved provincially and federally prior to the arrival of COVID in the event that this kind of pandemic reality, flu pandemic occurred. Yes? Yes. The, the, the pandemic influenza plans should have been taken and tailored for the specific virus that was arriving, in this case, COVID-19. And in this case, it was significantly easier than might have been because it was so age-specific. Colonel Redmond, let me then go to the question that I uh, that I, I want you to answer, and you dealt with this on your webinar on the position uh, paper on on uh, the provincial and federal response to COVID. Our governments chose the lockdowns, shuttered the economies of the nation and the provinces. The people who decided on the lockdowns still will tell you, as you well know, that it was the correct approach. What do you say to them? What do you say to the prime minister, the premiers, and the medical officers of health? What do you say to them? I say that it was exactly the wrong approach, and it has killed way more than it could possibly have saved. The problem is, is we knew this based on the uh, non-pharmaceutical intervention documents and all the previous lessons learned. We knew that NPIs, if used, would have severe collateral damage. But even worse, they do nothing to protect the people who were most at risk. So out of the 26,000 deaths in Canada, 25,000 of them, no, over 95% have been in our seniors, and we did nothing to specifically target perfection for them. Now, that means that probably uh, the 73% that died in our long-term care homes may have been saved, and that's because the wrong response was followed. But the collateral damage I'm talking about is mental health, societal health, the crushing of our children's education and social development, the deaths from other severe diseases that went undiagnosed and untreated because of lockdowns, and the massive impact on our economy and our national debt. And for people that say even talking about the national debt is unconscionable because you're putting money before lives, I'm saying exactly the opposite. Let's be clear that when you take the national debt, the federal debt alone, from $750 billion to $1.4 trillion, servicing of that debt from now on will cost more than the entire national defense budget, and that's just to pay the interest. That means less transfers for mental health, social health, and other social programs. Who, uh, who is on side with you today? on the position that you explained and which was negotiated, as you explained to us, in 2005. It was in place. It was negotiated by the provinces and the federal government. We're all on board on how to respond to um, a flu pandemic and then tailor it to whatever the flu happens to be. In this case, it was COVID. Who's on your side? I've seen emails, Colonel Redmond, and you're not surprised by this, completely discounting your experience and your leadership in establishing emergency management policies. Who will stand up and say to you, to stand beside you today and say, yeah, we agree with Colonel Redmond? Who? I have, uh, I have a number of people who have worked with me behind the scenes but who live in fear of their continued employment if they speak up. But there are certainly, if you look at the, uh, the information on the use of NPIs, the best infectious disease doctors in the world got together and wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, ignored. The same group, plus many, many more, wrote 35 different studies that prove that the use of these NPIs, lockdowns, if you will, comparing similar countries with the same geography, the same climate, the same types of medical systems, that these NPIs didn't have any significant impact on the spread of the disease. Those studies ignored. 
the people who try and speak up in mainstream media are censored. So there are many that agree they have simply not been heard. Okay, I've never been censored. I've never been told that I can't put you on the air. It's never been suggested to me that I should not speak with you. I also spoke with Dr. J. Bhattacharya, one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. I have never been told by the people I work for that I should not speak to someone or I should not ask certain questions. So I want you to be aware of that. And, you know, you and I have talked before. So um, there's, a, there's, this, there's this feeling that uh, and maybe other people, it's happening to other people. I don't know. But it certainly has never been the case with me. I just want to make that clear. Um, I do appreciate you. I'm sorry? That's good, but that's certainly not the experience that I've had and that people who, uh, who I've worked with have had. I had a full documentary done, came to my house, filmed me, filmed Dr. Ari Jaffe, uh, went and saw many other people, put together the documentary, and had his career threatened. That documentary has never been aired. Hmm. Well, we're actually going to be speaking about freedom of expression to start tomorrow's show. So... Uh, what are your thoughts? Because we know another pandemic is going to happen. We know. It's, it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. Absolutely. Uh, uh, are, you, are you confident that, I suppose I know the answer to should never ask a question I think I know the answer to. Um, although I do that with politicians, I always say to them, always assume I have the answer before I ask you the question. But are you confident at all that if, when the next pandemic hits, that a more thoughtful, from your perspective, more thoughtful approach will be taken. Absolutely not. We're not done with this one. No, we're you, not. Uh, you wait till you see the fourth wave that is now being touted by uh, the medical officers of health and uh, some premiers. Uh, they intend to follow the, exactly the same process. We've had 16 months of a relentless campaign of fear to ensure that compliance are done and to ignore any evidence that this is the wrong response. So I believe we will see this response repeated this fall as case counts go up and you never manage a pandemic by case counts, but that's another long discussion we can have. Let me ask you so one I more think question. We're not even done with this one. Yeah, let me ask we just have a couple of seconds here. Where can people find the actual protocols from the emergency management plan that was in place in 2005, where is it available? Okay, so first of all, if you go to the Frontier Center for uh, Public Policy, you will find a copy of my paper, Canada's Deadly Response to COVID-19. And in that paper, you can find uh, links to those provincial plans. You can also go to pandemicalternative.org and copies of every one of those plans are listed on that website. So uh, I tweeted out that uh, deficits, which, folks, that's debt. Okay, that's debt. It's another name, but it's debt. So deficits, I tweeted, annually the last two years, each totaled more than what we would have accumulated in 10 years of pre-COVID deficit debt. The national debt, I tweeted, is in the stratosphere. Provincial debt is skyrocketing. And yet liberal cabinet ministers are touring Canada making funding announcements. So I put this all together and I came up. Can you imagine this? It didn't take me long to come up with this. Who's paying for this? Where's the money? Where's the money to pay for all the promises they're making, all the billions they're handing out? And how serious is Canada's total debt reality? By the way, the liberals are doing it now. The conservatives and the NDP, they will do the same thing. They'll promise all sorts of initiatives using money we don't have. So I got in touch with our good friend, Professor Eric Kam, Professor of Macroeconomics at Ryerson University, great favorite on this program, and I asked the professor to come on the show and talk about these issues. Professor Kam, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I, I have a few bucks in my wallet. I don't know how long they're going to be there, but I have a few bucks left in my wallet. Try to keep them away from the feds. But look at we, we have this word that we use time and time again, deficits. It's planned. It's just, you know, it's not really debt. It's just money we don't have and we're spending for you. That, I think, is what deficit has come to mean. But the reality is we have massive deficits. We have m massive national debt. We have skyrocketing 
provincial debt, and yet we have cabinet ministers running around making fiscal promises. How much how much sense does that make to you? It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, it all starts and ends with the party in power. Now, we can talk about Jagmeet Singh and his party, and I like that he came on your show. I give him credit for coming on your show and having the courage to do that. Other leaders who will remain nameless do not. Well, I'll uh, tell you. Well, hang on. I'll tell you. He said that he thinks that Mr. Trudeau is too intimidated to come on this program. That's what Mr. Uh, Singh said. I me. think that Mr. Trudeau doesn't want to answer uh, your questions. Probably That's why he not. doesn't want to come on the Probably show. Probably not. But let's not forget that one of the reasons that I like having Jagmeet Singh on your show is that it lets him be erudite and talk all about policies he's never going to really have to back up because there are no chance that his party is ever going to be in power. And he keeps backing those up with statements about how he would like to run the wealthy and the privileged and the corporations out of the country. I mean, could you imagine this coming from any other first world nation, a leader standing up and saying what we have to do is punish the successful people in an economy. It's ludicrous. And the NDP have been doing it since the dawn of time, which is why the NDP never get to be in power. And you know what? The Brits try, actually tried that. They they raised the taxes dramatically on billionaires about 20 or so years ago. And what happened? The billionaires just left. The billionaires left. The billionaires have been leaving Canada. I, I was talking about E.P. Taylor, who took his ball and his bag and his bat, and he went to the Bahamas because I don't like paying taxes here. You know, you made a statement that's that's really true. People talk about deficits and debts. And the problem is, is that they're in such such high numbers that it's hard to wrap your head around them. Now, not to disagree with you, because I hate to do that. At my, I, I do it at my peril. But they're, they are two different things. Let's just remember what they are. The deficit is when expenses exceed revenues in a given year. So it is as, it is as if you started on January 1st and ended on December the 31st and you looked at your bank account and there was a negative sign. And you said, okay, how big is that negative sign? So for Canada right now, it's about 314 billion. We expect it to jump to about 354 billion. And then you say, okay, then what is the debt? Well, the debt is the sum total, the aggregate of all of those deficits. So add up all of those negative signs year after year after year. And that's how we get to a number in Canada of about 1.4 trillion. And let me just say, that's up from about 700 billion before the pandemic. So it's not just, you're correct, it's not just the scope, the mass of this of these numbers, but it's where were we before the pandemic? And the answer was, we weren't so great then, and we're taking these numbers and we are darn near double, tripling, or quadrupling them. And that's the real fear factor. We've gone from not very good to darn near disastrous. Now, if I can just ramble for a second, People out there who support Mr. Singh and support sort of the left wing ideology are saying, who cares? We're never going to pay it back anyway. And I've, I've discussed this in terms of a credit card, because if you have a credit card, you know, the Green family has a credit card. Lord knows I have a credit card. There's a spending limit and we have to abide by it. But Canada as a country. We don't bank at CIBC or TD. We bank at the Bank of Canada. And so our credit card doesn't have a spending limit. So the reality is, is if you want to come down on the wrong side of the tracks, you say, what's the difference? We can borrow forever. But of course, that is ridiculous. That is not the way you run uh, an economy. For sure, it's not the way you run an economy in the civilized world. But you have a government that doesn't seem to care. There seems to be no plan. They say, well, economic growth is going to reach 5.8% next year. 5.8% based on what? I mean, I'm five foot five. Next year, I'd like to be six foot five. But you know what, Roy? I'm not going to be. And that's the problem is the numbers are so massive. The government knows people have a hard time wrapping their head around them. And they don't really have to stand up for their claims because yeah. no one is going to remember well, it's them like, anyway. It's like living in a fog. It's totally living in a fog. And it's legalized gambling. The government was hoping that this huge amount of stimulus would not impact inflation, or interest rates. And they were kind of gambling on that. Well, guess what, government? You failed not once, but twice. The Bank of Canada says the rates are going up. Listen to Tiff Macklem. He's a lot smarter than the prime minister. And he says the rates are going up in 2022. And CPI, the numbers that show our price levels, they're starting to slowly creep up now. That's and right. in some areas, 
not so right. slowly. Well, look so at look. There's, there's something. There's something else here, and that is. I don't. I don't want to forget this because I want to include it in our conversation. Let's also remember that since 2015, when Mr. Trudeau was elected to lead the country, the energy sector in this country of ours, this nation of ours, has suffered because of his approach and his policies. The energy sector directed tremendous amount of money our way, tremendous amount of dollars our way to underwrite the social programs and our health care, which is a social program. And, and we, we have systematically, if not destroyed it, we've certainly limited its, its capacity. I spoke with the, with the former um, premier of New Brunswick, Frank McKenna, who was the vice chair, I think still is, for TD. And Mr. McKenna was talking about a survey the bank had done or a study the bank had done over a seven-year period. Uh, it's either 107 or $117 billion that we lost, Professor Cam, on interest alone, and the uh, the uh, the discount we sell our oil to to the United States. When you look at those figures, you consider the amount of money that the energy sector would bring into this country, could bring into this country, and then combine that with the fact that we buy about seven to eight hundred thousand barrels of foreign oil every day in Canada. A huge, a huge component, a positive component of our economy was hammered and hurt by this federal government. And that's not the only sector. We can literally go sector by sector. I mean, the oil patch is just maybe the best example of complete and utter incompetence. But you look at a lot of sectors right now and you see the exact same thing. And I got to say one thing about Justin Trudeau. I give him credit. He learned from the best. His father was an absolute disaster, a cancer on the economy when he brought in stupidity like the six and five solution. And he has learned at the foot of his dad and he's driving out many industries. You bring up the most important example, maybe the most salient example, but don't worry, there are lots that are leading right behind them to say we've got to get out of here because we're being punished. All right, so tell me how much trouble are we in financially. When we look at the deficit, we look at the debt, all of the debt, the cumulative debt, when we look at the deficits that are being accrued, how much trouble are we in financially? Because the question is, who's going to pay for this? And my, my tweet simply said, they're not born yet. And that's the most simple response, I guess, or maybe simplistic response. Well, my and I tried to follow up your tweet by saying, what do you mean they're not born yet? Their grandchildren aren't even born yet. <laughs> so it just depends on whether you value today or whether you value the future, right? The government talks a lot about valuing the future, right? They talk about yeah, what we've got yeah, to do is yeah. ensure our future, but yeah. they have no plan for the future. If you just care about today, then you don't have to worry about the debt and the deficit because the answer is nobody's going to pay for it. But one day you have to service at least, as Mr. McKenna said, he's a bright man, you have to service the debt payment. And so servicing the debt payment is going to just keep climbing into the millions and the billions. And that's money that you do have to pay back because you owe it to the people who have bought your security. Here's, a, here's, so, an, here's another thought. If you yep. create a huge debt reality, which we have, which we own now, other countries have done uh, created massive debt as well during the pandemic. But we've we've specialized in creating debt over the last years. Yeah, but if you create a society which is in massive debt, you're then limiting the progress of that society. You're limiting the ability of that society to move forward uh, intelligently, to move forward creatively. And, and then when you do that, you're actually harming the future generations. You want to plan for the future? Don't hurt today. Well, that's right. So the question is, those debt payments, those millions and billions of dollars that are going to go into repaying the debt, it's an opportunity cost question, Roy. What could we be doing with that money? We could put that money into drivers of growth, but we can't because we're going to be paying off this debt forever and ever. Cody sends uh, an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Roy, it makes me sick that my three-month-old son is going to be paying this debt off. Cody, the truth of the matter is your son isn't going to be paying it off. His grandkids may be still paying the interest. Professor Eric Cam, professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University, is with us. Let's take some calls for the professor and David in Winnipeg. I know Professor Cam's going to love this question. Ask it real quick, please. What's, what's the question in one sentence? Uh, well... Here, we hear that corporations don't pay their fair share. They make billions and billions of dollars. Is that true? And why not? Corporations absolutely pay their fair share. Not only do they pay more taxes than your average company, they also hire way more people than your average company. So if you want to drive out both the tax base and the labor demand base, just drive out the corporations. Well, wait a minute. The banks make billions and billions of dollars every quarter. It seems to me they can pay more. And I heard Major League Baseball doesn't even pay taxes. And there's a bunch of corporations in the states that don't pay any taxes. 
Uh, I think that's an over-exaggeration when you say don't pay any taxes. And I'm sure you could pay more taxes too, but you probably don't want to either. <laughs> that's it, eh? <laughs> that's, so, that's so true. Yeah. Would you like to pay more? No. No. It's like people, when people are asking about climate change, yeah, sure, I believe in, uh, in, in funding climate change, but so would you pay more taxes to do it? No. Ted's in Calgary. Ted, what's the question? Ted. Hello? Yes, sir. What's your question, Ted? Yes. When you have a government that's anti-energy industry like there is now, why is nobody coming up with a solution that says, let's build the most energy-efficient technology possible in a country that is rich in natural resources? Why is nobody advocating this? Well, I I don't know. Thanks for the call. I don't know if that's a question for you, Eric, but uh, if you want to take it on, go ahead. Well, first of all, I would just say I wouldn't I wouldn't say that nobody's asking. Roy Green asks it all the time, and I hear other commentators asking it. The reality is it's not a priority for this government, plain and simple. Yeah. Really, it, it's, it is that simple, and it is that plain. And we are importing seven to 800,000 barrels of foreign oil every single day, which, by the way, we pay, we pay more to buy that oil than we sell our oil to our only foreign customer to. Uh, that's the United States, because we sell our oil to them at a discount. Paul's in Calgary. Yeah, so I'm wondering if UBI is a practical solution to any of this. What's UBI? Universal Basic Income. Okay, so UBI. Okay, well, what, one, do, you, what do you think of that, Eric? What do you think of that? You know what? I think there is a, a universal basic income. Uh, I think it was brought in the day the government told everybody to stay home, shut business, and we are going to pay you serve. I think UBI is here. I fear that UBI is here to stay. I think it's a disincentive for people to work plain and simple. Is there an argument to be made that social programs at some point, in fact, become a UBI? Well, they are a UBI. I mean, that's what it is. Everybody comes out with these with these funky terms like UBI. UBI is just another word for social program, social safety net, call it whatever you want, and say, well, do we need one? Well, it doesn't matter if we need one. It's here. It's been here for years. So a question for you that I have is this. How do your students approach this idea of the massive debt and deficits this country and Canadians are carrying on their back? What do your students think about that? What do they say? My students want to know who is going to pay off the debt. And when I tell them, probably not you, then it goes out of their minds. I mean, unfortunately, students are myopic. They don't see many, many years in the future. They're 20 years old. I, I didn't see much of the future when I was 20. They just want to know, is do we have a solution for it? No. Then they move on to the next question. What interests you particularly? What do you look for? What are the indicators you look at uh, that interest Eric Cam when it comes to I the believe- economy and debt? Yeah, I well, yeah, I believe in price stability, and I and I believe in having uh, motors of growth being fueled. So I think you have to keep things like interest rates low. I think you have to keep exchange rates competitive. I think for me, it's all about for an economy, it's all about competitive balance. And but if you've asked me this before, what's the most important number I look at? I look at employment because if people aren't working and yeah. they're not earning a salary. It's irrelevant. If they don't have a salary, they don't have money, they can't spend. The economy is an engine that seizes up. A lot going on. We've had the federal government, as you know, of this country saying it's going to do everything it can to bring the interpreters to Canada. We had three ministers, Mendocino, Garneau, and uh, Sajun, about a week and a half ago, delivering a news conference talking about the commitment of the federal government about time, because for years we've been trying to persuade them to bring the interpreters and other Afghans who supported Canada in the NATO mission to this country. It fell on deaf ears. There wasn't anything coming back from Ottawa. My good friend Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun, uh, who's on the show last weekend. Joe got us all started on the issue of the interpreters more than 10 years ago after Joe visited in, in Afghanistan. But we've had a situation, as you probably know, you're following the news on Wednesday. We found out that the federal government, which committed to bring the Afghan interpreters to this country as quickly as possible, had actually sent out questionnaires, forms. You know, when you deal with government, you get forms and threats. Each, co- each communication from the government ends with a threat, fines, jail, combination of. Each one. So in this case, with the interpreters and other Afghans who worked with Canada during the NATO mission, they got forms, questions, immigration forms, answer this, tell us that, prove this, prove that. And then they had 72 hours 
to fill them out and get them back. Can you imagine trying to get that done in that period of time, not your first language, in that period of time in a war zone? Now, of course, the government is saying, well, it was a mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake. We're going to be talking to an interpreter who actually is outside of Afghanistan now. He's going to be joining us in a few minutes' time. But first, and we're so glad to have him back, Major General Gene Milner, who was Canada's last commanding officer in Afghanistan. He's heavily engaged in the effort to bring the interpreters and other Afghans who supported Canada's war effort to this country. General Milner, thank you very much for the time. I can't tell you how many... How many emails I received? I, I should have counted them. How many emails I received, comments I received, when earlier in the week people found out what in fact had been done, that these massive numbers of forms, or, or forms with huge numbers of questions, have been sent to, or at least made available, to Afghans who wanted to come to this country. That must, did, that, how, did that take you by surprise? Well, I have to admit, I, I really like to see the support coming from Canada because, uh, as you mentioned, it was a totally unrealistic uh, timeline. Um, too much bureaucracy in, in the uh, the forms that they've got to fill out. Uh, some of these, and uh, not interpreters, but workers that we uh, we work with over in Afghanistan don't speak the language, so it just was not feasible. So the good thing is the government has. Uh, has changed. They realize that they, they can't meet that timeline. I think they're they're putting more assets in. They're getting local support to make sure that uh, you know uh, forms of some kind. I don't know if they've changed the forms or not. But uh, uh, the bottom line is again is we, we need to speed this process up. The Americans have just pulled uh, their first 200 out. Um, so uh, and they started uh, obviously before us. But uh, we do need. To, to get going. That was just an unrealistic uh, uh, task that they asked of the, of the Afghans, but it, it has been sorted, and, uh, and I think that uh, there's a realization that, again, that they've, they've, that, that's been taken off, and, uh, but I don't know exactly what the requirements are for the, the interpreters on the ground and others. They are in very serious danger. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Roy, I mean, the, the you know you hear it uh, you hear it from the Americans because they've obviously got a lot of troops still well, not a lot but they've got about a thousand troops on the ground but uh, you know General Milley um, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs was stated uh, a few days ago as saying that they're t- continue to take more and more districts um, you know we know that the the U S won't be in Afghanistan for much longer and uh, the Taliban are seizing that opportunity so they've got momentum and. Uh, you know, they're going to go after interpreters. They're going to go after those that worked with the NATO countries, Canada, uh, the U.S., the U.K., Australia. And uh, so this, this definitely needs to happen quickly. Um, I think that, I think it is. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of good planning. I, I think that uh, we're probably not far behind uh, the U.S. Uh, but again, I, I don't know the details of what they're demanding of, of those in theater. But uh, again, we continue to talk about it, and we need to uh, because I, I think we're at the point now. You get them to a third work, uh, third party location, you bring them to Trenton somewhere, and we do vetting. We can do vetting right here uh, in Canada. We we can do that. We're we're probably not going to get it 100 percent right, uh, but we could get get it pretty close uh, because we've got a lot of people that know people and they. They, they'll tell us, you know, our fellow interpreters will tell us who's good, who's family, who's, you know, who, who's worked with us on the ground. They're not going to have the paperwork, the, the exact paperwork, and we know that. Um, but, uh, but yes, I, I think we're almost at the point where we, we, we get them on an airplane, bring them, bring them to somewhere, bring them to Trenton or somewhere, and, and we can do all that vetting um, here. It's a life-saving mission. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Roy, it's uh, it's it, it, it's you know it, it again. It's I come back to it. Uh, you know, we we soldiered alongside these these interpreters and and many others, and and they fought, they volunteered, and uh, and now the Taliban want them. They're on their list, uh, as as you well know. And you mentioned you know the the uh, one of the interpreters that we don't have touch with. I'm I'm hoping. I don't have touch with them either. I'm hoping. Yeah, you know who you know who I'm talking about, General. Oh, I do. I 100% know, and, and we, 
you know, we do have to be careful. I mean, that I, I know the Taliban listen to these kind of networks, but the bottom line is that I believe he's on the move, and uh, which which is a good thing. Uh, but uh, but yes, I mean, they're being sought, they're being looked looked for, and uh, and we know what that persecution would mean. Uh, that the Taliban are, are ruthless killers. Who would ever want them? as part of their country to rule, I will never understand that. Um, they're just absolutely wicked, bad people. Uh, and I, I was happy to be participating with NATO to take them out. Uh, but yes, we're, this, this has got to continue to, to move. It's got to happen fast. It's never fast enough for, for a soldier that was there for, for quite some time. And again, is passionate about bringing these, uh, uh, these interpreters and, and Afghans to, to, to Canada to a safer location. Yeah, you know, I hear from uh, from veterans who were yeah, Canadian Forces veterans who were in Afghanistan, and they are distraught over this. And they yeah. uh, they they send me emails saying I'll go over there and try and get yeah. them out myself. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of us would would love to do that. I mean, but it's you know it's it's in the hands. I know there's some. Some excellent people on the ground. Uh, I know that the planning's being put into place. Uh, the devil's in the detail now, Roy, as to, to getting, you know, getting the people um, sorted into a location, um, a quick vet, and and get them onto airplanes. So the logistics, we're good at that. We're we're very good at that as a force. And combined with uh, you know Immigration Canada, the embassy personnel on the ground, there's no reason in the world why this can't be a a slick op- operation to get them out. But, yeah. uh, yes, would absolutely uh, um, really, really appreciate being a part of it, but uh, but understanding that we've got some very capable people uh, on the ground doing that. Well, okay. that's good That's good to know, General. And and they need to put the forms aside just, just for yeah. a little while. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the default position in, in Canada, because it's a bureaucracy, it's a department, this country's a department in my view, is to go for forms, always go for the form, and and this we don't have the time. They don't have the time. We have to get them out of there. Yeah, yeah. And I and I I know what we're learning off the Americans. They seem to have moved quick with this first two hundred. Uh, so I, I and I think that the good thing is that the government has listened to us on this. They, they're cutting back, uh, you know, a lot of that bureaucracy that you talk to because they do know that we do need to get the uh, these interpreters and our and our workers, our, our Afghan fellow comrades who fought alongside of us out of there um, now. General Milner, thank you for joining us. Thanks for everything you're doing to get them out. I know it's very personally important to you. Absolutely, Roy. It's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a great team of, of uh, veterans uh, working alongside uh, b- both the departments, and, uh, and we're here to support because we absolutely uh, want this to happen uh, uh, quickly. Yeah, and you have the support of the people of Canada, so that's a pretty good army. That, that, that's that's outstanding. We're hearing we're hearing support from 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 everybody. Yeah, and and they understand it, which is a really good and gratifying to to hear. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.